I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Today is uh, the National Aboriginal Day of Prayer. And I will confess, I don't know exactly where to go with this. My first thought was for us simply to reflect in group silence, living all of the questions that honest reflection might bring. Somehow it doesn't feel like enough. And then I listened to all the arguments about what we should or shouldn't do regarding the wrongs us settlers did and continue to do. And so I sit in my racial guilt and shame, let alone in the shame brought on or brought to bear by my Christian heritage, and I seek mental, emotional, financial, political, and spiritual answers. And yet still, it's not enough. So do I simply spend the day thinking about the unique heritage and contributions of the Aboriginal peoples and their contribution to our culture and somehow beg them to see the possible contributions we made to their culture? Three weeks ago, Lynn and I visited the former Kamloops residential school with our daughter and granddaughter. I grew up being told what a wonderful gift these schools were for our government and church to Aboriginal people. Look at all the money we're spending on their betterment. We never heard stories about tearing away of children from their parents. We never heard about the abuses suffered. We were the benevolent ones, and they were the recipients of our generosity. After all, Who wouldn't want to be like us? The tables are turning, thankfully. We assumed we were right, we were light, and that they were in darkness. And in pridefully thinking we knew what was best for them, we lost our own capacity to see our own shadows and eventually entered some very dark places of dominance and abuse. We used our culture and our faith to marginalize. And ironically, now, a hundred years later, natives are becoming our teachers. And they have much to teach us. And our passages this week reflect the shadow we could not see, both in our culture and in our expression of institutional church. Like Israel in exile, prophets like Isaiah have a helpful and humbling message for the Church today. There was a time when the Church, and particularly our Anglican expression of it, had a clear place in public life, culture, influence, and politics. We were a powerful people in community, promoting a gospel of Christendom a colonial expression of consumerism, blessed by our God who wanted to see us prosper, even prosper at the expense of others. Our culture, our God, were focused on dominance. And dominance always distinguishes between us and them. 
As I've said before, Ellen Jones, the former rector of Grace Cathedral, said, We either contemplate or we manipulate. And for us, the gospel usually meant manipulate. So unlike the Jesus we profess to follow. We united God and country and church. We created Christendom, a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde institution with an institutional pride going back to the Middle Ages and even before. I mean, look at our historic institutional shadow. We became vicious to our mother, Judaism. We killed those that disagreed with us. Violence became central to our faith. We created a prideful colonialism that supported the Crusades. We supported a male-dominated structure of white company men. And we minimized our real master, money and profit, and engaged or were flirting with the prosperity gospel. We often promoted toxic theologies. And we became success-oriented rather than oriented towards transformation. We formulated a great wall of constricted intellectualism centered on confirmation bias, trying to make faith a certainty. And now we find our influence waning as we shrink and wrinkle. And we wonder, how will we survive? Now, frankly, with this as part of our history, I'm surprised we've survived so long. And now today, as we seek to honor National Indigenous Day, we end up having to face another horror that occurred under our proselytizing and persecuting political and religious life, our complicity in the residential school system. It's a wonder that any of us still want to call ourselves Christian. And if we're honest, we need to ask the question that now is the title of a new book written by Brian McLaren. The title is, Do I Stay Christian? He dedicates 80 pages, the first 80 pages, to the answer, no. Then he dedicates another 80 pages to the answer, yes. And another 80 pages are dedicated to the question, how? And ironically, his how answers are very non-institutional. They're personal and relational outlining an inclusive communal reality that sees everything in the universe as interconnected, one even as God is one. I am, you are, we are, loving action in the world. And wherever that happens, God is there. Anywhere else is a human and often destructive construct. The how of staying Christian is reflected in the rest of our passages this morning. Our psalm suggests that we get off our high horse of rightness and listen to the silent voices of creation. It tells us this silent world of creation that we live in a world or have chosen a world with too many words. It says there is no speech nor are their words in the creation. Their voice is not heard. 
yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Or as Paul says in Romans 1, everything that can be known about God is made plain in the things that God has made. We have no excuse. And so partly I hear, just be quiet for a while and listen to the things that God has created rather than listening so much to yourself, myself, and the things that we've created, like Christendom. Our epistle gives us a more practical and overt picture of what this looks like. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Do you know what the word rejoice actually means? It means to be favorably disposed to divine grace and love. Favorably disposed to divine grace and love. Be awestruck and gentle. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Not your entitlement, your superiority, your power, your need to be right. And then Paul goes on to emphasize this in these beautiful words. Paul goes on, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And then our gospel passage describes an eternal presence that holds all the goodness, truth, and beauty of the divine, the word, the logos, the divine reason underlying the universe, ordering it and giving it form and meaning, the principle of God in the cosmos, what Richard Rohr interestingly calls loving action in the world, the cosmic reality of the eternal Christ, with Jesus as the incarnation of that, and we as participants with Jesus in that incarnation. The Logos is described by Quakers as the true light that enlightens everyone and everything. Wow, how we missed the boat on that one. How many of our actions can we look back on in our history and name as loving? Perhaps many, but they have not tended to be remembered in our institutional history. And I find myself wondering what would happen if all our decisions were first held contemplatively in the silence of contemplation, asking the question, does this decision action reflect or advance loving action in the world? And what might it mean or might it look like if loving action was more incarnate in each of our lives? I've mentioned this before as well. Dr. Beth Liebert, a sister of mercy and professor, former professor of mine, had a sign in her office that sums this up for me. It read, the secret is to risk disaster, hope for triumph, and describe the forms of the Incarnation. The secret is to risk disaster, 
hope for triumph, and describe the forms of the Incarnation. Describe all the forms of loving action in the world. This is living in the incarnate reality that something sacred is at stake in every event. It is recognizing that in the divine mind there is no distinction between the sacred and the secular. The secular is only those things that we make in our minds a distinction. Everything is one as the divine is one. And I've told this story before, but it bears retelling. I want to describe one example of the Incarnation as a Christ-like model for us this morning. A person who embodied contemplation rather than manipulation and sought to model his Christianity after Jesus rather than after Christendom. Right in the middle of the U.S. slave economy and displacement of aboriginals, as the settler presence moved across the West. His name was John Woolman. He lived from 1720 to 1772, about 52 years. A Quaker. He grew up in a Quaker community where most Quakers were slave owners. Quaker meetings, if you are aware of them, traditionally are primarily silent. 70 to 80 percent of the time is spent in discerning, listening silence, taking a break from all the words that spin around us, grabbing our attention, creating fear, frustration, anger, and ideas of who's right and wrong. And if you as a Quaker feel you want to speak to the whole assembly about a significant and controversial topic like politics or morality or slavery, you have to get permission from the elders to address the community. They call that a minute. You have to get a minute. Woolman was an avid journaler, and his journal, published after his death in 1772, is one of the longest published books in North America. It has never been out of print. And its focus is on three main ideas. Anti-slavery, anti-materialism, and human power's ability to corrupt. It also focuses on God's divine love and goodness for all of the creation. John Woolman began his employment as a 19-year-old clerk in a business that was centered, its economic reality was based on slavery. His boss, the person he worked for, and all of his church friends were slave owners and had justified that reality using our beloved scriptures. One day he saw a bill of sale go across his desk for a slave. And he writes in his journal, I felt a stop in my mind. He went to his boss, refusing to sign this bill of sale, and was fired. And as he sat with this tough decision, he realized in his own heart, in this stop in his mind, that slavery was, these were people. 
And he went to his church elders and said, I feel that God is calling me to speak against slavery. Will you give me permission to talk to the assembly? They said no. So he waited. Every once in a while reminding them of what he felt he was called to speak. They made him wait for a year. And finally, a year later, he got up in front of his assembly and talked about the evils of slavery. And within a few months, that whole congregation divested itself or paid its slaves. Then he went to the next church and asked their elders if he could speak. And that church made him wait six months. And again, he spoke. He went from church to church for 30 years doing that, always waiting for the permission to speak. And he said the most significant time was not when he spoke. It was when they made him wait. Because the stew of this unrighteousness would ramble around in their hearts and minds. They knew what he was going to say. And by the time he said it, their hearts had been changed. Contemplation is action. Thirty years later, he's in London, and now he's speaking to the slave traders. They, too, made him wait for a year. And at the end of the year, the Quakers became the first major denomination in the world to abolish slavery. He also held a curiosity about the Aboriginal culture and was more curious about their spirituality than about bringing his to them. Three brief journal entries as a counterpoint to what colonial Christendom perpetuated on Aboriginal culture. For him, there was no other. He said this, I had for many years felt love in my heart towards the natives of this land who dwelt far back in the wilderness, whose ancestors were the owners and possessors of the land where we dwell, and who for a very small consideration assigned their inheritance to us. Love was the first motion, he said, and then a concern arose to spend some time with the Indians that I might feel and understand their life and spirit that they lived in. Novel idea. If happily I might receive some instruction from them, or they might be in any degree helped forward by my following the leading of truth amongst them. I following the leading of their truth. He also wrote, in conversation with them by an interpreter and also by observations on their countenance and conduct, I believed some of them were measurably acquainted with that divine power which subjects the rough and forward will of creature. And at times I felt inward drawings toward a visit to that place, of which I told none except my dear wife until it came to some ripeness. And visit he did a number of times. He heard about a tribe that had been displaced three times by settler troops as the troops moved westward. He also heard that they refused to move again and had resisted and attacked the American cavalry. 
which was again seeking to displace them. And he feared for their lives. And so he went out to the edge of their village with guides and translators and waited for an invitation into the village. He waited for an invitation. A week later, he was invited into the village to meet Pappenhelm, the chief and his advisors. And Woolman felt that he should not be the first one to speak. They sat in silence for an hour, with Woolman praying silently. And the chief began the discussion with the words, I love to feel where words come from. I love to feel where words come from. Loving action in the world is more often lived rather than spoken, and Woolman tried to convince them that they needed to be to move. However, they refused. And a few weeks later, the cavalry, likely blessed by their chaplains, destroyed the village and its people completely with God on their side. Christianity isn't dying. Christendom is, albeit rather reluctantly. If you look, you can see and be loving action in the world. The Logos is that eternal principle of loving action in the world. And for us Christians, Jesus is the incarnation of that loving action. And by identification with him, we too are called to be this incarnation of loving action in the world. So this morning, as we struggle to imagine what our collective future holds, let us live in the grace of loving action in the world. And let us remember that the secret is to risk disaster, hope for triumph, and describe the forms of the Incarnation. Amen.